0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com.
0: I am Patrick Martins, host of The Main Course. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special show. Hey, we're in uh, Parksburg. Yeah, Parksburg, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Touching on Amish country. Bill Kovaleski, 20th anniversary of Victory Brewing. Yeah. And Visera. We're in the middle of a snowstorm and we're
3: warming up with beer from Victory. Not a bad day.
2: And Will. Be Will excited Stevens, to be here. Thanks for having me. BeerManus.com. So we came up to uh, celebrate with... Uh, with Bill up here at Victory and their, their new brewery. And uh, give a big shout-out. I'm Jimmy Carboni from uh, Jimmy's Number no. 43 and the Good Brew Seal. And thanks to our sponsor, Uni Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and lagers. This show will be airing April 5th on our regular scheduled time. So here we are, man. We're, we're, we're drinking alt beers, and we're talking about everything from the Philly beer scene to uh, malt in beers and, uh, you know, growing an independent craft brewery. So cheers. Cheers. Welcome to the show. <laughs> So let's talk about the beer in front of us, so alt beer and, and some traditions in Pennsylvania, because I've had a lot of customers recently ask me you know, for more for more malt or malt-forward beers, and I'm not really sure what that means, but I know there's styles that, that we can talk about. Well, come
4: on, pat yourself on the back, Jimmy. You've cultivated an intelligent beer crowd at your place, okay? That's hard work right there. When people start asking about malt, that means they're getting it. They're realizing there's more than one component to beer. Um, we've been through such a hop-dominated Uh, succession of beers in craft brewing. And it's a wonderful thing, but I think it's time to pay homage to the malt component as well. And um, the alt beer that you have here really has both factors playing pretty hard. We um, first introduced this one in 2006 for our 10th anniversary, 10 years alt. And uh, what I like (laughs) about this is that um, you get... By, by using the dark roasted malts in this, which come from Germany, two-row varieties, uh, you can really play the whole flour German hops off like, off them to get a really sort of brassy character. So where roast becomes bitter, hop flavor begins to kick in in something like this.
3: Yeah, it's perfect for the weather, too. You know, again, it's full flavored. It's not, it's, you know, it's the afternoon, but none of us are going to fall off our stool with this, but it still feels warming and... They're nice to come in from the snow from. And I know you
2: also had for a while a beer called the the Victory, the All Malt Lager. Yes. That's what the reps called it. They said it was All Malt Lager. Was that the name of it? Well, boy,
4: that one has lived a very circuitous life. Um, It is currently our Victory Hillis Lager. It began life as Victory Brandywine Valley Lager. That's where we're located here in the Brandywine Valley using both the east and the west branches of the Brandywine as our water sources. Um, But at the time when we first opened our doors, 20 years ago today, um, we had three beers on tap. One was the Brandywine Valley Lager, one was the Hop Devil Ale, one that we thought no one was gonna drink, but it made Ron and I (laughs) happy. And then we had our Victory Fest beer on tap. So the Brandywine Valley Lager was an export lager at the time. And um, it dawned on us pretty rapidly that it wasn't that far removed from the Fest beer, and our audience was looking for a lot more flavor. So we started moving it more towards the Helles to make it more refreshing. And the first iteration of it moving towards Hellas we called it All Malt Lager. Um, being here in Pennsylvania, As few people know what lager is, and they usually think it comes from a brewery called Yingling. Um, Our good friends up in Pottsville are doing fantastic work. It's a great family brewery that survived Prohibition, but we needed to sort of show the difference between ours and theirs, so we called ours all malt lager, and um, now it's Victory Hellas Lager.
2: That's great. And talking about styles of of malty beer, well, I know for beermenus.com, you're really tracking, like, all the beers that are in demand and, and that are posted on, on, on beer bars around the country. Do you have particular malty styles that um, you see popping up?
5: Um, I'm trying to think. Definitely the beers that tend to balance malt and hops more like this one are um, becoming more popular. I'd just say, in general, the more balanced. Okay. I feel like when we first got into beer, we wanted the extreme, the crazy, and people are kind of coming full circle. Uh, it's a more balanced beer. And we see things
2: like German Dunkel styles and English milds, which uh, I, I, I'm telling you, my customers want, they love hops, but they want something else, too.
3: Well, that's so nice, like you said, you've, to be able to cultivate people that ask for that because I love, I mean, I love brown ales, I love mild ales, I mean, there's so many alt beers, and again, it's not very common to see a lot of these styles, so the more I think people are asking for them and talking about them and making them, it's, it's good news all around. So let's talk about
2: 20 years, man. Congratulations. Okay. Yeah.
4: Yeah, we made it. I, that, I don't know what the plan was, but we made it to 20, so yeah, and more more reasons for toasting. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll keep drinking the Alpere. I'm going to take the last one here. Oh, uh, There you go. And it's
4: 20 what, years ago to to today. To, to the victor goes the spoils, huh, Jimmy? <laughs> uh, it is 20 years today. Wow. Shall we all sing Sergeant Peppers? <laughs>
2: <laughs> February 15th, 1996. So we're in a new brewery. Tell us about this, the evolution, yeah. because you're still an independent craft brewery and um, you know tell us how you got her this is a big project
4: it is a big project and it's really completely predicated on the thirst of our customers so you know what you do here on the heritage network and what you do in your pub and what you do with beermenus.com i mean all of these things function together to make the audience thirsty for great flavors and so uh we Ron and i have been very bullish on the future of craft beer and um, we got to a point in 2011 where we had a big decision to make. We would either going to pull the ship slowly into port and be about 100,000 barrel a year brewery, which to us was amazing to consider <laughs> when we put together our first brewery, um, or we could go forward. And we decided to go forward. And so you're sitting in a brewery that is capable now of doing about 250,000 barrels of beer a year. We did 141,000 in 20, last year in 2015. And so it's built for the future, and as you can see from the farm fields all around us, it's you know, it's uh, here to to grow and take advantage of an area. Take advantage sounds bad, but to fully leverage the space around us here on 42 acres,
3: 250,000 in this facility alone, or total combined. 200
4: uh, in this facility alone. Wow. Yeah, and if the brew house to our back here is uh, is you know uh, maximized and we have all the fermentation in place, that is situated for 500,000 barrels. These are absurd numbers to guys that started on a 25-barrel system with a 144-seat restaurant, but, you know, we've been blessed. We saw a tremendous thirst, so we decided to go forward.
2: That's great. Earlier, Will was saying that uh, he met uh, Scott Dietrich, your your brewery operations guy out Mm -hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. Yep. What are you guys looking at, hops?
5: We were taking a tour of Seagull Hop Ranch. Oh, yeah. Um, And yeah, it's just really fun that time of the year, seeing brewers go out there and uh, really build those relationships with the hop growers Seems like you guys do a lot of that.
4: We do. Um, In 2007, the uh, the fluctuation in the hop market that caught a lot of craft brewers uh, short um, was uh, we needed hops. And some of our brokers weren't going to deliver what we had contracted. And so my partner, Ron, who has been always on more of the procurement side of the uh, equation than myself, um, you know, we couldn't suffer the losses of not having hops. So he went direct with his German language skills to <laughs> some of the brokers and some of the hop farm owners and the... Uh, the um, growers association in Germany and we started making direct relationships and so um, that's worked out really well i mean we we went there to pay a premium but for that premium we get the assurance that the hops are going to be delivered year over year and uh just today we said goodbye to Anya Bentela she did a 5 month uh apprenticeship at our brewery as part of her studies at the technical university of munich at Weinstephan and the reason i bring her up is her dad's farm in tetanang grows the majority of our tetanang hops for prima pills and all that stuff so our relationships with our growers are pretty tight well
2: that it's was amazing. a question i was going to ask you about you know, how your new capacity is going to you know, impact your sourcing or how your sourcing is going to impact your new capacity
4: uh yeah you know i we're only one brewery out of 4,400. So (laughs) there's a lot of people screaming for ingredients anymore. And um, I feel that there's great organizations like the Brewers Association who are trying to keep the communication uh, open between breweries and growers so that we can not only get the quality of ingredients we're looking for uh, for, but we can also get the supply that we're looking for. And, you know... We touched on uh, multi beers earlier. There's another way to deal with shortages of things. You just go towards another ingredient, right? You know, mm-hmm. hoppy beers are all the rage. Um, if we were
3: short on hops, we would
4: just make more multi beers, right?
3: That works for me. Can I just mention also you were talking about ingredients, but I know something that's crucial to Victory is the water and the water sourcing and and Mm. the Brandywine Creek and um, the Headwaters Fund. I've read a lot about that. I think that's exquisite. Can you tell us a little bit about how that got started?
4: Yeah, we're we're very fortunate. Um, When we decided we were going to be in the Philly area, um, we started looking for a place to situate our brewery, and we thought we had a good space about five miles east of where we are in Downingtown. And when we met with the municipality and we gave them our numbers of um, expected uh, effluent that we would be putting as wastewater out of our brewery, they're like, nope, too big, go somewhere else. We're like, well, come on, help us out. Where's your wastewater treated? And they're like, place called Downingtown, just west of here. So, duh, we went to Downingtown (laughs) next. And uh, as a former paper mill town, they had excess capacity to help us with the wastewater treatment. And when I say wastewater, it's just high in biological oxygen demand. But the beautiful thing was the water tested to have very high quality. And as it stands, the east branch of the Brandywine that we're on, it forms. The headwaters form only 14 miles north of our There is no industry on there. Um, over the course of the last three years, we've helped other watershed stewardship organizations plant, gosh, over 6,000 trees in order to um, you know, create great riparian buffers and protect the quality of the waters. So, um, water's important to us in a nutshell.
3: <laughs> and drink headwaters fail, right? Because that goes to help support that fund. <laughs> that's true, yeah. man. That's cool. Another question <laughs> I have is
2: like, you know, you, you are here in Pennsylvania and you guys are now, you're going to be a, a big, big player here, bigger than you were. I mean, are there any local Pennsylvania farms making grains for malt and, and hops?
4: That's a great question. I feel like you've been, like, you know, in my backpack, traveling with me, Jimmy. Um, <laughs> last Friday, uh, no, not the past Friday, the Friday before. Ron and I gave talks at the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference up in State College. And uh, he gave a talk on, so you want to be a hops grower. And he filled the room. And he had slides from Anya Bentola's farm. And, I mean, he really went into detail what it takes to grow hops. And uh, over our careers, we've actually discouraged more people from growing hops and encourage because we tell them the truth. We don't want somebody to just think it's all fun. It's hard work. So um, he gave that talk, and myself and Adam Bartles, our director of brewing operations, uh, we gave a talk on Mother Nature as a collaborator, basically how we as brewers have to deal with the changes that occur with raw ingredients every year. So we're doing our part to try and um, explain to folks what we as a brewery need in terms of quality, and uh, if that encourages them to do more production in this area, that'd be great.
2: Well, I know for in New York City, like in terms of, of chefs sourcing from farms <laughs> yep. in the Lancaster area, there's yeah. a lot of great co-ops and a lot of great products, and your growing season is better than New York State, Yeah, so it's a little further south, so I know a lot, a lot of chefs in New York City work with the Lancaster farm. But
4: actually, when it comes to brewing ingredients, both of us suffer because of high humidity. Uh, humidity is not good for the hops, um, and uh, humidity is really not, the, not a great thing for uh, malting barleys either so what's going to happen if we encourage them the growers by creating some demand for ingredients is they'll end up growing stuff that works well here in pennsylvania and new york and we'll adapt and learn how to use it so collapsing the footprint for sourcing is something we're very much interested in um the fact that we're sitting on 42 acres in farmland you might want to infer something from that i don't know
2: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm up in Cooperstown or something. You know, it's really beautiful up here. So what's the role of this brewing room? I mean, the the tasting room. This is like, you know, it's a brewery. There's a huge, it's a bar we're sitting in. Yeah. I feel like we're ready for a big party, which is probably happening. I'm sure
4: that's happening, right? Yeah. Well, we have a party, a party of four. We're good. (laughs) Um, It's built for the future, to to say the least. This is actually 350 seats here, and, um... You might look around you outside and think, "Well, the population can't support that." But I'll tell you what: this this rural suburban population is really underserved for restaurants. So um, you know, we build it. Hopefully, they come. We've only been open as a restaurant here since November the twenty third, and honestly, we're doing better than we had anticipated. We've been really pulling some crowds in.
2: We're definitely we're going to stick around and go to one of the dinners tonight. We're really looking forward to. It trying the food but i can still smell the malt you know we know we're in a brewery when you can smell mal- malt right in
3: oh it smells divine i want this as a perfume <clears throat> um was I gonna ask but you guys also not just brewing ingredients have really great relationships with farmers for your restaurant ingredients
4: we do we do we're very fortunate um the area that we're located in jimmy touched on it earlier we're really literally next door to lancaster so everything that we need in terms of um, ingredients for our restaurants is essentially here so we ended up moving all of our protein sourcing uh, solely to pennsylvania probably about eight or nine years ago and um, you know majority of the produce in season is available here as well Uh, i do remember working with a local um, grass-fed beef farmer and uh, telling my at the time restaurant general manager Matt Kruger like Matt you ought to look into this we ought to, we ought to work with Dr. Bill and get his beef in here and uh, they got together cooked some burgers they thought they were delicious and Matt was like there's no way we can have a $12 burger on our menu <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that many years ago so it's really fortunate that the audience is uh, connecting with things of quality.
2: Well that's awesome hey we're going to take a short break we'll be back in a few minutes on a beer session here.
1: In 1996, L. Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry.
2: Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're out here in uh, Parksburg, Pennsylvania at the Victory's New Brewing. Whatever it's called, it's Victory Brewing. It's our 20th anniversary. A lot of numbers and all this. It's the 15th. It's, it's February 15th, the 20th anniversary. I kept getting confused, but cheers, man. Uh, Bill Kowleski, <laughs> and and uh, Will Stevens from Beer Manus. Um We are talking about what you've been through in 20 years, but also like the Philly beer scene. Mm. Back in January 18th, 2011, episode 46 of Beer Sessions Radio, I had you on with Kurt Decker from yeah. Nottinghead and Tim Kehoe from Yards. Yeah. It was like the Philly beer show, and our good friend Ray Dieter was there. So what's <laughs> yeah. happened to those guys? Give us a little update on the Philly beer scene.
4: Uh, exciting stuff for both of those guys. Um, Tom just announced that they are looking to build a new brewery for Yards Brewing Company. And uh, so that's terribly exciting. They're going to... They've topped out over 41,000 barrels in 2015, and they're looking to move to a place that will support about 150,000 barrels.
2: So yours is really... They really represent <coughs> Philly, don't they? Like Philly. I, I would say week, so. Yeah, I mean... part of
4: it. They, they were ahead of us. Um, they are in Philadelphia, where we are not. Um, but, you know, we both service that marketplace, and we're not alone. There's plenty of other good breweries as well. And Kurt is... Um, Probably really close to opening up the second iteration of Nottinghead. Uh, so the Sansom Street location has been closed for quite some so that time. That was
2: that like the little brew pub. You walk up the stairs. You got it. That was a great it. place.
4: Yeah, on the second floor of the Sansom Street Oyster House. It was actually the brewery. Uh, it was a Sam Adams Brew House opened in 1989. I want to say I was there on opening night because I was such a dork um, <laughs> as a home brewer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, so that had a lot of history. And, and um, William Reed uh, of the Standard Tap and Johnny Brenda's, he brewed at the uh, Sam Adams Brew House. Uh, so yeah, you know, lots, lots of history. But the Philly scene is really robust. Um, you know, St. Benjamin is open, um, not too far from the Yards Brewery. Uh, they're doing a nice job. Gene with Tired Hands is getting all the accolades he deserves, and Ardmore at his larger location. I, I don't want to overlook anybody, but I also don't want to just start naming names. So it's a vibrant scene, to say the well, least. Well, and you
2: know, we stopped off at the 30th Street train station. Yeah.
3: And Oh, my goodness. Tell us about that place, the <laughs> Listen, little there. Listen, you know, I have to say Bridgewater's. Yeah. And I have to say I always see this about New, about Philadelphia, and I hope my New York friends don't get yeah. mad at me, but I just think I'm— always floored by the bartenders in the city. Okay. They're just wonderful. I never get a bad pour. Everything is on, like, beer clean glasses, knowledgeable staff. It's just wonderful. And I think that it's really exciting to see it come kind of from the inside out, like the passion come in from from every level. I don't see that as much in other cities. How do you think that, like, Philadelphia's beer scene kind of helps fuel the United States is craft beer scene. Ooh, the that's is a great America's question. craft beer yeah. scene. You know what I mean?
4: Well, I think we can all agree that Philadelphia is a town without pretense. In fact, pretense gets you thrown out of places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in general. So you know that the chalkboard beer menu, rather than the leather-bound beer menu, and the online beer menu is the <laughs> perfect situation. But um, definitely, uh, Philly again doesn't tolerate pretense well and I think the bartenders here were very happy to have stories to tell it might just be an evocative name on a chalkboard but they can give it life by pouring a little sample and telling you what it's all about and they really did embrace that and there was a time when we sold beer through the back of the house not the front of the house because we were getting the Heisman from too many people you know front of the house managers like, oh no no we have all the beers we have Coors Light we have Heineken we have Yingling Lager we're good so when well, I mean you
2: saw it through the the chefs. Yeah, we'd
4: knock on the back door and we'd leave a six-pack of Hopto. We're like, "Hey, enjoy this after your shift." And then essentially they would enjoy that so much that they would start asking for it and pestering their front of the house managers. So a little bit subversive, but you know,
5: it's great. <laughs> right.
2: That's what I was going to ask Will because I know this this was your second city for beer menus that time. It was it?
5: Yeah, um, we obviously picked it because it's such a great beer city. Um, it's obviously close by to where we were based out of. But, um, yeah, it's just amazing how across the board it seems like, I do know, relative to other cities, the category of beer is more mm-hmm. popular versus other alcohol categories. But Yeah. Hmm.
2: What are some of the, the places that are like the top-rated beer bars in, in Philly that you've seen on
5: your side? That's a tough one. I mean, obviously it all seems like it all goes back to, to Monk's.
4: Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, monks is should be there in the spotlight for sure.
2: One of the eri- originals, but yeah, monks. Uh, Anne, I know you had a list of places that you wanted to visit tonight.
3: Yeah, we have to do about ten bars in two hours in the middle of a snowstorm. So what, what, tell us something. So let's them. see. Uh, we're Jose Pistolas. So I would like to swing by Alespina. None of this is probably going to happen, but oh, <laughs> we're going to try our best to get into as many as we can. Uh, Eulogy Tavern, Standard Tap is great. Mm. I mean, we, there's just so many. I don't.
4: Yeah, hey, Eulogy, of course, yep. Yeah. being is so much fun.
3: It's, I'm so impressed, too. Again, those are very expensive kegs and these, you know, beers that they're able mm-hmm. to to do in towns smaller than New York, and I have trouble with it in the middle of 23rd and 3rd, you know, so it's kind of like I just love the passion here. You know,
2: I, I came with a with good buddy, Chris Kuzme. Mm-hmm. I was here, I think, three or four years ago. We came down for the day, and we hit six or seven places during Philly Beer Week, and, you know, that inspired the New York City Beer Week. But we went to places like Devil's Den, and uh, there was a place, I think it was called Luxembourg or Benilux. Benilux. yeah. it had a so, cheese, yeah, a, totally... cheese a, a beer, a chocolate pairing option. And we went to Monk's Cafe. And it, I loved it. It felt like there's a small beer town that uh, had everything you wanted. So maybe I should move here. I don't know. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> we'll welcome you. <laughs> but we're coming back. Craft Brewers Conference is here it's in right. May. Yeah. And I know that some of the, 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 the beer bar owners, like Dan Lanigan and a number of people from around the country, are, are also going to come here. So, you know, we're going to be here and hit, hit up the town that. The first week of May. So, but some other places like, like you know, your role of victory. Yes. Other certain bars and, and establishments in Philly that that, that carried your product, or, or did you early on target places like New York and uh, and DC?
4: Uh, that's a great question. We actually did find ourselves sending beer a little bit further afield to begin with because we didn't quite get the response in, in uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia wasn't quite uh, mature enough for what we were doing, and and I say that only because... um,
2: We're talking 20 years ago. Yeah, we're talking
4: 20 years ago, exactly. There was not much demand for micro-brewed beer, which we now love as craft beer. So we did find ourselves going to New Jersey, New York, down into Maryland um, because we had the capacity and we wanted to turn people on to our beer. We've always viewed craft beer very sort of... Democratically, in that you know anybody might like this stuff. They just have to have a shot at trying it. We never really drew a line as to who might like it and who might not like it. We stuck our nose in places that we probably didn't belong, but we turned a lot of people on to flavor.
2: And what what was your flagship beer that that really made you in New York and other places? Hop
4: Devil lit the fuse for sure. But New York was unique because it took to prima pills a lot quicker than Philadelphia did. So I heard
5: that. it's one of my favorites.
4: Cool. <laughs> Yeah, Prima, I mean, is, as you know, is very strong in New York and stays strong. Um, so I guess I would never knock Philadelphia. I, the, the culinary scene is fantastic here, but I guess New York is uh, maybe is a notch more prestigious in terms of culinary uh, accolades, and I think that the Prima is a really easy plug-in to a lot of menus. I think that... Uh, Philadelphia sort of plays the field with our brands, which is great. We can support that locally.
2: And you know, like you're, you're buying beer now for what, Tachem 307 in New York City, and you also work at Blind Tiger. What are some of the victory beers that, that you're either currently carrying or would consider carrying.
3: We rotate through pretty much everything. I mean, I, yeah. We, I, when I was also when I was at the Ginger Man, we did a lot of Victory beers. Um, but I love Golden Monkey as an intro beer. I think I use that the most to kind of hook people in who quote <laughs> don't like beer. And I always get the response, "This doesn't taste like beer." So if we like, keep talking does. about Bill's
2: beers, <laughs> he's gonna laugh every time. You well, say but it. it's just, it's Golden just Golden Monkey. It's,
3: <laughs> respect the monkey, Brown, right?
2: Brown Meister Pills. Yeah,
3: you know, I just think <laughs> it's great to have that variety. And I think that's why we're able to rotate them in right. so frequently is the variety. And you can put them on de- several different styles and, and different parts of the menu. So, yeah, we do really well with that.
4: I, I laughed, and not to take away from, you, you phrased it so well, Ann, but I laughed when she said Golden Monkey as an introduction beer. I find <laughs> that. True. <Yeah. laughs> Nine and a half percent yeah.
3: big beer, yeah, yeah. A
4: lot of people
2: get naked and introduce
4: themselves to <laughs> one another after
2: Golden Monkey, too.
4: So it's, we've got so many stories on so that. So there is that, like, the,
2: the strong Belgian ale what, what, what do you call it when you, you drink so much of it and then you have the result? Well, you get naked. <laughs>
4: <laughs> what do you call it? I don't a, know. Is that a phenomenon?
2: You, is that a it's phenomenon. called blackout. Yeah.
4: Good times,
3: no. <laughs> yeah, but you know, with that, that style of beer I think is really good for converting. It
4: is. It absolutely is. I, I agree with that. Getting back to the flavor of beer. I mean, I've said about Golden Monkey, it's a beer that no one ever breaks up with. Um, because a lot of people get introduced to it in college because they do the math, and they're like, wait, 9.5%, and it's not that expensive? Let's do this. And so they begin a relationship with it fairly early in life, and then it becomes something that they carry with them to parties, and it, it just is attached to good memories, unless it's attached to <laughs> one really bad memory. And then
2: <laughs> so how did you guys come up with Golden Monkey? Because I know about <laughs> Hop that was That was actually yeah. one of my old bars. That was one of the first beers I ever served on draft. uh uh-huh. kind of turned me on to American craft IPAs. But when did Golden Monkey come about?
4: It's got a couple of sources of inspiration. I actually developed the name prior to the beer. Um, we had wanted to do a mybach that was going to be heavily hopped. And uh, before we got to do it, uh, Ron, the guy standing at Ron's former employer, Old Dominion Brewing Company, did their Springbach, and it was exactly... What we had in our minds, and at that time, when there was only eleven hundred breweries, if you know, if another beer existed, there was another style you could move to. And um, Ron and his wife celebrated their honeymoon in Bruges, Belgium. There's, don't worry; the story is going somewhere. And they <laughs> can were talk about Bruges, given by cool. the owner of um, the brewery, uh, a couple bottles of seven uh, fifties of uh, Bruges triple. They took two of them home. Um, subsequently, they had. Uh, two children and they celebrated those births with the beer afterwards and then they were on their third child and they didn't have a bottle to celebrate with so he was like we need to make a triple quick so we made the golden monkey to celebrate the birth of Ron and Linda's third child.
3: That could not have been written better as a story. <laughs> like, are you serious? It's a purpose-built Come on. beer. That's great. But, but the best
4: thing is it preceded the child, okay? You know, we're very <laughs> responsible <laughs> brewers.
3: You know, also talking
2: about other styles and IPAs, you know, like we talked about some malty beers, but but the Belgian triple style, that's, that's one of my favorite beers. Mm. You know, and like the Chimay triple, those are beers that really got me going as a beer bar like 10 years ago.
4: So Will said something earlier that I thought was really... Um, well said, you talked about you know the, uh, the evolution of craft beer or you know the next turn of the wheel. When you look at it, um, American craft brewery was basically over-hopped, um, sort of roasty, big, huge, flavorful things. They took mainstream lager and they ran with the flag as far down the field as they could and planted the flag in and said, if, if this is what exists, insipid swill, we're going to do really challenging stuff. And so we went from that into uh, Belgian beers. A lot of American brewers began in Belgian beers um, because they're so comfortable. They're so inviting. They're so unique and flavorful. So they're a great next step. And then we went into extreme beers as a culture here in America. And we're still in some of that. And then we went into some session beers and sours. still unique. But the next turn of the wheel is probably going to be more Germanic. And probably going to be more malt-dominated, most likely, if you look at it as an evolution.
5: Yeah, it just feels like it's sort of dialing it in a bit more to understand how to make balanced beers. I feel like that's, I'm curious to hear your perspective, but it seems like it's more challenging to make those balanced beers. And over time, it seems like the customers are appreciating that more. Is that kind of your experience, that it's harder
4: It's my experience from day one. I mean, I think every home brewer, which I began as in 1985, had their first success with a a stout. Because, you know, they had enough roasted malt, they had enough hops in there to cover the flaws, and they're like, man, this is good (laughs) beer now. So to make a clean, nuanced beer has always been a challenge, uh, whether you have the equipment for it, whether you have the aptitude for it, whether you have the raw ingredients for it. And that's not a knock at anybody that's making wild, bold beers, because I love those. But I think, yes, in order to achieve the nuanced lagers, um, it is a challenge.
2: Bill, uh, what's this next beer that we're drinking?
4: Uh, we are enjoying something called Agave IPA. And that is, fruity flavor that you're getting from it is the addition of uh, grapefruit juice. Fresh squeezed in November in um, in Florida. Actually, it was early December and shipped up in a tanker truck to come together in this nice American hopped 7% IPA. And this beer is the first in a new concept or series for us called the Blackboard Series. Um, our brewer's are excited to continue to innovate all the time but they're also a little bit jealous of our chefs because our chefs get to do blackboard editions every day so this series recognizes that and it gives our brewers the opportunity to look at what's seasonally available and what they might be able to do to sort of capture the season
2: and so in terms of like seasonal beers and special runs and stuff So between your your different breweries, so Parksburg, Mm -hmm. are you you just making the the flagship beers and Donington's doing experimental? That's
4: a great question. So as a 200-barrel brew house here in Parksburg, Parksburg has, you know, shoulders most of the production burden. Our bottling line is out here. Our canning line is out here. Our automated keg filling line is out here. So... Anything that you're getting in those packages is primarily done here. We have a small kegging line in Downingtown, so believe it or not, Downingtown is somewhat relegated to be a 50-barrel, finely tuned R&D brewery. We hosted the guys from Blue Jacket Brewing um, a number of weeks ago and did a collaboration with them, which will go on tap down at their place and. Uh, March in DC, 9th right? in DC, DC, yeah. We had the guys from Freigeist in Berlin over. Oh, yeah. we, we did a that collaboration on the Tiger with them. Yeah. Awesome. Yes.
3: That's pretty killer.
4: <laughs> so it's kind of cool because we've been using Downingtown to invite folks in and, and, you know, play, learn more.
3: Whose idea was the Moving Parts series? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's a really great idea.
4: Yeah, the Moving Parts series was, again, another attempt to allow our brewers to have a lot of Tell me what that is. Um, so, Moving Parts so cool. usually denotes like, I don't know, a pain in the neck. Oh, there's too many maneuver- moving parts. I don't want to do it that way. For us, we were like, no, let's embrace the chaos. So we've got four ingredients in beer, right? If we move some of the parts, we change things up, we can have a lot of latitude and a lot of fun. So we did five in our original uh, series of it, and we changed an ingredient each time in order to do something within the IPA style but move a part around.
2: Did you get, did you get any of that in New York City?
3: We did, yeah. 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 Number
4: three was my absolute favorite.
3: Gosh, I have to I have my notes. So, three, <laughs> I don't know which one? Number, number three. three. All three was, the numbers, like
4: Jimmy said. Yeah, number three was um, a Belgian fermented beer that was hev- heavy on citrus hops, and those two things came together to make something that was like peach juice.
2: It was mind blowing. It was great. Well, you can hear they're sitting up here out right at the yep. Parksburg, uh, Pennsylvania. You got to remember what state we're in. The brewery that Victory's at now, and so, getting ready for the 20th anniversary celebration. You can hear them moving parts and everything else, so
1: we back in a few minutes on beer Sessions
4: Radio. Right. I
2: Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guess what? You can uh, become a member of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Check it out. And thanks for our sponsors, Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class mm-hmm. ales and lagers. We're out here in uh, Parksburg, Pennsylvania, 20th anniversary of Victory Brewing. And uh, my good buddy, Will Stevens, has a question for Bill Kowaleski.
5: Yeah, so as um, basically someone who works at a small business, I always find it interesting to hear about kind of stories of the early days. Hmm. Um, You mentioned back of the house, giving six packs to chefs to get kind of in the door. Um, In the early days of beer menus, we would often upload menus online for places just as kind of a proof of concept to to demonstrate that people actually were excited to see what beers were where. Um, Do you have sort of any other stories of, in the early days, things that you guys did that... kind of fun to remember.
4: I probably have tons of them. I just had to recall them. I I love what you just said, though, about the proof of concept thing, because when you have an idea that's somewhat visionary, and we were not alone in 1996 by any means. There were great breweries that preceded us. But convincing bar owners that, you know, like this craft beer, this micro-brewed beer might be desired by some people was really fun. And one of the ways I approached it was, You know, um, bars are often so much about the promotional dollars, whether they're going to do a karaoke night or whether they're going to do this promo or that promo. So much of it, it was based around spending. And I used to try and convince them, you know, if you just choose quality suppliers and quality things to promote, you can make your products the entertainment. You could take the bad beer choices and turn them into the actual entertainment and not spend more money make more money. So there were radical concepts like that that I tried on people and you know the right ones the right ones took to it.
2: But, but 20 years ago I mean you you walked in and you're trying to sell your beer mm-hmm. but you're saying there wasn't really anyone who would who would buy it.
4: Well, there wasn't anyone is a little bit of a stretch, but there were much Fewer people that were willing to take a, a flyer on this, and they would say the, the standard things like, "Oh, is this like Sam Adams?" Okay, well, yeah, it's kind <laughs> of like it, but that's really broad. We just got you in the spectrum now. Um, it, it took a lot of talking, and, and I tell you, I don't, I don't envy um, what brewers have today because now, when a brewery opens, they get a tap because they're new. Um, so. The audience loves new, and new is driving a lot of uh, excitement in craft beer. Um, New was not cool 20 years ago. New was scary, Um, especially here in Pennsylvania. You know, um, the Pennsylvania Dutch mentality is a real thing. We are loaded with skeptics in this area. And, And, you know, New York, much more cosmopolitan, more people moving in and out. But by and large, when you look at this country, all of the adventurous people. Their forebearers ran to the West Coast to see what else was out there. All of the people that were complacent kind of stayed on the East Coast. Again, painting really broadly. So when we designed the label, when I designed the label for Hop Devil Ale, I was thoroughly aware that Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, was the um, number one Coors Light Market in the United States and had been for some time. So part of me was like, okay, the last thing I need is a bunch of Pennsylvania Dutchies... You know, getting the crazy notion of drinking a Hop Devil and spitting it on the floor of the bar and influencing everybody else by doing so. So what did I do with the Hop Devil label? I made it like the poison dart frog. I put it in the craziest colors, purple, orange, green. It was the furthest thing from the silver bullet, just so if somebody was sitting there at the bar and they loved Coors Light, they would not think about ordering that beer. So sometimes you got to use psychology on people to assure that you don't get the wrong effect, the wrong results.
2: You know, you're right about, you, you said you first were selling through the back door, through the chefs, because back then, the, the mid to late 90s, you know, some, some uh, wine salesman friends of mine, they said, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny, we're selling wine to these restaurants, but the chefs are drinking beer as, as, as their shift drink. And, and I had never thought of that. So,
4: I guess you're on to something. Well, you know, you, <laughs> as Will was alluding to, when you're starting up a business, you try many different avenues. You know, the obvious ones aren't necessarily the ones that are going to work.
2: You know, another great beer that, that you've made is the Braumeister series. Yeah. I loved it, and I love that you changed up the hops. Sometimes mm-hmm. you even snuck some Dunkels in there.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, that, that yeah, That was one I ran with
2: for a few years. How did you come up with that one? Because you had the Prima Pils, and uh-huh. then you went to Braumeister. <laughs> well,
4: Prima was sort of like a success story too soon, um, meaning that Ron and I love the Pilsner style of beer. And, you know, Prima caught on rather quickly for all the right reasons. And it almost negated a whole opportunity for us to continue to experiment within the Pilsner vein. So we said, all right, put Prima on a shelf. It's perfect as is. Let's go down. Let's be reductive. Let's go down to a single hop and learn everything about that hop. By doing a single variety per batch, and that was the idea behind the Brown Meister, and it bought us the latitude we needed to continue experimenting within Pilsner and not and still be loyal to Prima Pils.
2: Well, bringing us to today, so we're drinking. You've got a couple of 20th anniversary beers. This one is called the with the XX
4: anniversary XX. Which means Eight. 20 in some places.
2: Oh, it does. <laughs> not the, yeah. not not those the Super races, Bowl. <laughs> but the Super Bowl wouldn't do <laughs> hell this year. It'd to be 50. But, yeah. so For your
3: 30th is. anniversary, maybe switch it up a little. Sure,
2: <laughs> I got we got 10
4: years to plan. <laughs> We're good.
3: X, X, X. So what is this?
2: This is, this is another Pills, too.
4: Yeah, it's leaving great lace. Um, so we challenged ourselves on this one. Uh, we wanted to do an Imperial Pills. We're not too big in style names, and I don't even know if... You know, you can crack open a book and see what an Imperial Pills should be. But this one is 8% alcohol by volume, all German uh, two-row malt, and all German noble hops. So um, there's Spalt Select playing pretty heavily in here, um, which has a nice lemony character to it.
3: Can I ask you, you guys both, you and Ron studied and apprenticed in Germany. Mm -hmm. How important was it to have that? classical training and to really understand you know the ins and outs of styles and style guidelines obviously these are some really experimental beers and you're able to do that but you know was it something that you would recommend to people just starting out or did it hold you back like what do you think about
4: oh, that's a great question and i think that you know the most education you can afford to load yourself up with is always going to benefit you in life um for us it was extremely practical uh we've Needed to see if this was an industry we were really devoted to. I got out of school with a bachelor of fine arts, and I was a graphic designer. Rana got out of school with um, political science and economics degree. He was in, um, you know, uh, cost management, but we were homebrewing. And so we really needed to jump into it as a career to decide if we wanted to go that route. So the education was great. The other thing was, you know, raising money. As we formed an S-Corporation and had to beg friends and family for some equity towards our company, they found a lot of comfort in the fact that we actually had an education to base this off of. So those two factors for us were very important to establish our business. And I would definitely say, as I did, for anyone starting in gather as much knowledge as you can going into it
2: i, I like awesome. this beer a lot i <laughs> actually <laughs> like the imperial pill talk about different styles of golden monkey and
3: we cheers Belgian a lot in beer sessions yeah, and <laughs> it's good it makes
2: everybody drink when they hear that
3: yeah it's gonna be a drinking game for listeners every time we cheers you cheers
2: i think they want to follow us on untapped and actually know what we're drinking which is kind of a, a cool thing that people really want to know what we're drinking. And we're really privileged to, to be here with you. I mean, like when, I'm going to go back to beer madness because whenever I think about Will, I'm always thinking about all the statistics he knows and everything. I mean, uh, are, are there people drinking imperial pills out there?
5: Um, I mean, we look at the stats all the time. Definitely lagers in general seem to be uh, gaining popularity big time, mm-hmm. uh, definitely personally, and we see it in our own data, um, which has me excited. And I feel like this is great for you guys because you're probably my favorite lager brewery. Um, but, yeah. Cool. Excited to be drinking this one. That's why I keep drinking. Yeah. We should, we should <laughs> you know, data
4: is so important, though. It's funny that we're having this conversation. 20 years ago, there was no data. I mean, you know, our business plan compared us to ex- uh, import beers because that's the only corollary that we had out there. Um, now it becomes vitally important to understand trends, I think, because I alluded to it earlier in this program um, there was so much open range stylistically for breweries to wander into without colliding into one another. And now there's less of that, you know, whether it's the name, whether it's the style, whether it's the creative impetus. So I think what, what Will is doing is very valuable for all of us to try and, you know, let's let's not duplicate efforts. Let's all try and do things that um, enhance and not duplicate.
2: You think now for a new, you know, we're talking about sourcing ingredients and, you know, 20 years later as a new brewery starting up now, you're, you're right, there's, there's room for you know, new breweries, everyone wants to try the new ones. Yeah. Do you think that new breweries have to be more focused in terms of their styles or, or, or their expertise now?
4: That's a, that's a great question. Gosh, um, I think they have to be focused in order to have a standout beer that the audience can rally around. Yet at the same time, that's a double-edged sword because if you hang your hat on one single thing and it doesn't catch fire... <laughs> very dangerous business predicament
3: yeah and it also seemed like a lot of your you know biggest sellers now were happy accidents you know or it was just something that you did because you wanted to mm-hmm. and kind of without those stats so I kind of you know on one hand it's helpful to have but I could only imagine it maybe would hold somebody back and say I shouldn't do another triple you know I shouldn't do another IPA but you never know I suppose it's just a nice additional tool do you have any advice for people starting off now like that want to be independent brewers that are going to try to grow on their own
4: connect with an audience. There are very few people who decide to open up a brewery that doesn't have some retail component to it. Um, And when I do hear of somebody who thinks they're just going to be a packaging brewery, um, I try and warn them what I've learned. And you really do have to find a local audience because your local audience is what's going to build your future for you. You've got to be relevant and you've got to be valuable to some people who are going to hold you close
2: let's let's switch there's another one It's the 20th anniversary extreme ipa well yeah Tells experimental ipa one. we're
4: we're taking experimental you IPA. we're taking you uh from eight percent pilsner jimmy to a five percent um session ipa uh, it
3: smells so good yeah so this
4: this guy
2: it smells bigger than it goodness. it
4: does doesn't it though um So we were very fortunate to get a portion of a whopping 3,000 pounds of hops that were uh, grown this year of a variety called Number 7 from Idaho. So these were an experimental hop, I believe, just last year. And so they went commercial this year, and a whopping 3,000 pounds were generated. We got a significant portion of that. So that's why we call this an experimental IPA. It's really on the the avant-garde of... Hop flavors. What do you think of it? I mean, the nose oh, is it's huge, right?
3: delicious. Absolutely. But this is the kind of beer I want to drink. Aromatic, bright, flavorful, not overly alcoholic, just complex, really good.
5: So is it challenging brewing, uh, you know, Belgian, German, sort of more traditional, like IPA style beers all in one brewery? I know some people are Wow. curious to hear what you think about that.
4: I love that question. Um, well... We'll have you at our Downingtown brewery later on this evening, and you'll realize what I mean when I say in Downingtown you have to make your own fun. So we, uh, we had to <laughs> brew lots of different beers just to keep ourselves occupied. But fortunately, we had designed systems to make that a little bit easier. And we're also yeast geeks. We have 70-plus varieties of yeast um, in our two laboratories. So we have a really wide palette of opportunities with yeast. Now, we're not using 70 yeast brown. strains that— any given time. Uh, typically three are active and, you know, um, throughout the year will be somewhere around 20 that have been put into play, but um, we have them all and, and they do make differences in the beers and nuance. So that's the types of challenges we embrace in order to give a wide portfolio of flavors.
3: Can I ask, how is the um, uh, suburban... Pennsylvania audience reacting to the Kirsch Goza and some of the sours that you guys are doing, because it's killing in New York City.
4: Yes. um, Kirsch Goza went over really well because it's not super sour. Right. And we haven't really gone super sour yet. Um, Right below us, where we're sitting, is a lactic, um, a bioacid fermentation plant. So we can correct the pH of our mash, and throughout the process, that was the original purpose of it and it's, that's how it's used but we've learned a lot about lactic fermentations from that and it's fun it's a little frankensteinian lab for all of
2: us <laughs> we're, de- we're definitely looking forward to our, our post-show tour because this is out in parksburg you can get her by the amtrak and it's septa too right out of philly uh septa doesn't stop here oh, yeah. amtrak does yeah
3: septa can go to downtown to see the other one yep
2: i've done that a i don't even times. know where we are we're, we're <laughs> somewhere out here in parksburg pennsylvania and uh, it's cool. I mean, I'm looking out. It's a beautiful brewery. I'm seeing hills and, and, and fields. And uh, I guess you will connect with the land out here, you know, people. All right. But, um, you know, <laughs> Bill, I don't have any more questions for you, but I'm, 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 I I want to keep drinking, and we're going to hang out. But so, any last words on, on the 20th anniversary? I mean, you're, you're living it, and you're doing it. Uh-huh. So you're know, probably not looking back as much what and you want to ask a question
3: <laughs> no, i'm just curious just about you know how important it is to you guys are 20 years of in, being independent in this crazy time in craft brewing and just uh, how do you do it i mean what is is there
2: how do we do
4: it yeah I
3: mean, I, you turn
2: away billion dollar <laughs> yeah offers and stuff the phone rings a lot and
4: it's you know years ago it was tire kickers now it's people that have some really good pitches um Independence is an important thing. Um, At the same time, I see alliances becoming important as we go forward. I think that, you know, our little fishbowl of craft brewing has some big sharks swimming in it now. Um, You know, there are some big corporations that have bought into it. And so um, I think it's going to take alliances to stay strong as well. And I don't mean to, you know, sound like there's dark clouds on the horizon, but... um, Preserving and protecting what you've built has got to be a focus. You can't just pretend the world is always going to move in the same manner that it has for 20 years. It doesn't look like it's going to at all. So, um, you know, there is a business to brewing, no doubt about it. And um, we employ 411 people in our operations. Uh, Their livelihoods and their futures are very important for us. So we have to look at this as a business. And um, the better we do it, keeping our business running the more innovative we can afford to be uh, the more innovative they can afford to be and the happier everyone's going to be I believe so, you know, it started basically as glorified homebrewing 20 years ago. Ron and I were just completely psyched that, you know, we were given this opportunity to make beer and people would actually walk in the door and pay for it. But once you establish that and you prove that's possible, then it really is a business and it's got to be run that way.
2: You know, I was just looking at, there's a book that we talk about, Audacity of Hops by mm-hmm. Tom Alcatelli. On the way up here, I went the time, the chapter when, when, you know, you guys started in, with like, 96 He mentioned Victory, he mentioned Magic Hat, he mentioned New Belgium and New Glarus. He also mentioned Red Bell Blondale. Yeah. Is Red Bell still making beer?
4: Red Bell is not making beer. No, they flamed out pretty quickly. So did Independence Brewing Company. We were scared shitless (laughs) (laughs) um, when we opened because there were some other companies that were really loaded up with, with money and equipment and they just flamed out for some reasons. Slow and steady wins, so, so, so,
2: 20, 20 years does does mean something. I and mean, congratulations to you, Bill. Hey, Absolutely.
3: thanks. thanks everybody, everybody drink. <laughs> and
2: for people out there, you know, Philly Beer Week's coming up in May, right? May 3rd through 6th. And there's also craft the Craft Brewers Conference out here, too. Wait, so. May
3: 3rd? Philly Beer Week is the same week oh, as Oh, no, I'm sorry, CBC. Oh, I was about, about to be like, oh, oh goodness. Yeah, <laughs> 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 my goodness.
2: Collision. But it's, it's out there in June, so... There's times to come and visit, and a lot's going on. And the other thing I will say is that it's funny that in New York City, I don't think that we think as much about Philly beer and Pennsylvania okay. beer as we do other states. Okay. But there's room to grow because I think you guys are making great beer. So
4: thank you. I there's great beers from a lot of places, and we're happy to be making New Yorkers happy with our beer.
2: Very uh, much. Anything so. Anything else you want to say? We love your loggers. Yeah, <laughs> I keep bringing them just idea. wrap it up. All right. So uh, thanks so much for joining me, Bill. And, we'll, and uh, we'll see you next time on Beer sessions Radio. All right.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website,